Welcome back to Behind the Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. If you're interested in all things brain health and you want to learn more about this magnificent organ in your head, then you're in the right place. This is a show where we interview experts and professionals in the field of brain health, whether that's neurology, psychology, integrative and naturopathic medicine, and more. So today we have with us Keitha Mead-Pike to talk about the very interesting topic of infant mental health. And this is an important topic and one that I'm glad we're able to highlight on the show, especially all the work you've done. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pass it to you and let you introduce yourself and let our uh, listeners know more about you and the work you're involved with. Great. Thanks, Natalie. So uh, I work in um, early intervention for the state of Idaho. I'm um, currently certified in, as an infant mental health specialist level two, um, which means that I focus on the relationship and attachment between the caregiver and children that we serve. That's awesome. Um, and so I guess just to kind of dive into it, and this might be a very hard question to answer, but for people who like might not know, um, what is uh, infant mental health? Like if you have like kind of a, a definition you can go off of or something like that. Sure, absolutely. So I think I must, I envision people probably think of it like as a baby laying on a couch talking to some therapist, but of course that's not what it is. Um, Infant mental health is the study of children's social emotional development and the relationship and attachment they have with the primary caregiver, whether that be a parent or a foster parent, um, whoever's caring for them family members, extended family members. So um, it's fascinating because there's so many levels to it. It's got a lot of different concepts and it's a very dynamic field. It sounds like it. (laughs) Um, So like a little bit about um, what you do. Uh, Can you talk briefly about what early intervention is and how er uh, infant mental health plays into that? Yes, yeah, definitely. So early intervention is um, specifically working with children birth to three years old that have a risk or a delay in their development or risk of delays, um, something that they may have a disability that they had at birth or birth trauma, um, something that maybe affects the way that they're developing and they're not on the same path as what we would expect. Our goal is to help them catch up to their peers in skills like um, motor skills and in communication skills and adaptive skills. Um, so those, those developmental things that we monitor and, and target when we find a child's behind in that one area, that's you know a big part of my job. But specifically, I like to look at that social emotional piece and um, when children have had trauma, I mean, become from a hard place. Um, I, I really try to pay attention to that and help caregivers regulate children that are dysregulated. So um, for example, um, when children have had trauma, I, you often hear people say, well, kids are resilient and they get over it, they won't remember But we have found that is not true, that our bodies are very much 
memory keepers and our brain codes things. Um, it looks different for a baby where she's not going to be able to tell you like, I'm really hurting or I'm confused or I'm sad or I'm scared in the same way that an older child could. So um, we look at those needs that kind of emerge through behaviors that are atypical. An example might be a child that's been taken from their bio home and placed into a foster home setting. Um, and they may have maladaptive behaviors in both homes, but um, we wanna get them regulated and to a, a place where they can operate and grow and learn and stable, stabilize them in those relationships around them. So when you were talking about what you just said in the trauma aspects, I think it's interesting because this definitely crossed my mind that, you know, there's, you have this tiny human, this, this baby who, you know, may is not fully developed, obviously. So they're cognitively not developed, like fully developed. So you kind of question like how much they're picking up on yeah. like what they're experiencing, what they're seeing. So when you think about trauma and especially the way uh, you were saying how new information is coming out about how the brains actually does store these kind of things, even at such a young age. Um, what, I guess, what impact does that have? And then like, how important is like proper diagnosis and then like being able to treat something like that in an infant who, like you said, can't say I'm having a hard, like I'm having a hard time. This happened. So how, what challenge does that pose? Yeah. Well, so when we started learning more about, about the brain and doing the brain mapping and um, understanding that memory starts at birth, it's implicit until about 30 months, so two and a half, then it becomes explicit. Um, so that sense of well-being, that being cared for and cherished and delighted in, that should be a part of every child's experience. But if it's not, or if there are things where maybe some trauma is happening in the home or some drug abuse that is affecting a caregiver, the baby reads that as, as abandonment. So um, that feels, I'm sure, very much like uh, something's different and I don't understand what it is, you know? So when we think about infant mental health, there's so many variations of everybody's experience. I just look for things in a home that indicate that there's distress. Maybe uh, a baby that isn't being addressed when they're crying and that's their only method of, you know, telling someone they they're have a need that is unmet at that moment. Um, so maybe I, I watch and see how the caregivers respond and if they're understanding what that need is, helping them learn what developmental stages we should expect at each age um, and, and how, to, how to get there with their baby. Um, and sometimes it's nothing that the caregiver is doing wrong. It might be just an educational piece where they need to learn more about what's happening or what should be happening at each age. It's, and sometimes it's just their own trauma that they've had from their own growing up years. So um, if you've never had a, a loving, safe relationship to grow in, up in, or you've been moved often to different caregivers, that would create a lot of holes in how children should be, how we could care for them. 
Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say there's like a treatment that is ever going to fit anyone home. Like it's, it's as varied as the experience and it's so reliant on the capacity of the caregivers really to read the child and um, to be in attunement with him. So I think treatment is assessing what the issues are and coming up with strategies with the caregiver that would fit into their lifestyle. Like if they, let's take an example of a family that's had trauma. Maybe they've had a removal from a baby who's been removed from their bio parents and placed into a foster home. So the, the ways that that might come up for the baby to express that um, change and that distress um, would be maybe excessive crying or clinginess or hypervigilance or they are really looking around their environment, not sure what to expect. Um, things may not feel safe for them. They become dysregulated. You might see more tantruming behavior depending on their age, uh, more fussiness, irritability, you know, and, and I think I, I really like to talk to families about how they feel when those feelings come as an adult and help them problem solve how to help the baby feel safe and secure at their age. Um, so if I can just, I have a question, but I do want to ask you something first because you've used this a few times. Um, you've used the phrase like dysregulated. Ah, um, yes. Can you kind of uh, define what that is? Because uh, to be honest, I'm not really sure. <laughs> of course, yes, thank you. I try not to use jargon, but sometimes that happens. Um, so dysregulation, actually, I, I've been, regulation is probably an easier place to start. So regulation is when you feel your feelings, but you're not out of control. You're kind of going along in that homeostasis. So when a baby comes in the picture, they need a lot of help with this because they're dependent on adults for everything. Uh, so they are co-regulating. They're regulate. They're using an adult to regulate their emotions and their um, homeostasis. And then as they get older, they start using co-regulation skills, which is helping get from that, that place where they're sort of lost their minds and upset and out of control to that homeostasis where they're in control and able to express their needs in a more healthy way. And then self-regulation is when you can do that for yourself. You don't need another person to help you get to that homeostasis. You can, you can think it through and, um, and, and figure out, so problem solve um, your day-to-day -day life. So that emotional state is always in flux. And I, I really like thinking about it, not just for young children, but for the whole age span. If you think about adults, as adults, we usually can manage our day-to-day -day life pretty well, but something happens and it throws us off our game, right? We're like, I can't think about anything else. I'm like super upset. I can't, I, I'm, you know, I might even have a panic attack. I might be like, um, unsure of what to do next. We kind of get into that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And we might need someone, 
um, a friend or a spouse or um, another professional, a professional um, to help us get back to being co-regulate with them so we can get back to being self-regulated. I think it happens all the time. You know, you have a bad morning and you need to kind of check in with someone. That's a form of co-regulation. Like, I just need to find a place that I can bring myself down from that heightened arousal and, um, and be able to think a little more clearly or have perspective or reframe this. So we do that with children at a much more uh, frequent rate. So babies are exploring their environment and they're out there looking at things and touching things and tasting things and something comes into their world, um, a dog that they don't know or something um, similar and they immediately look to their caregiver for that reassurance or that interpretation of what this means. They usually will go to a parent and ask to be picked up and be close to them. And they're, and, and literally our own heart rate, breathing rate and our calmness affects that child. So then those two systems start to calm down when the danger is fast or heighten up if it's not fast and help us get to, you know, safer ground. Um, so, so that's how we do that for children, whether it's something that is perceived as unsafe or it is unsafe, they, they look to us and we look to care for them in those situations. That's really helpful to understand. And I think that's really important just for anyone in general to understand, not, not always in the context of a baby, like, of course it is, but to understand just like human behavior in general. So yes, yes, totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I use that a lot when I talk with families about, um, you know, just understanding your own brain. Like when you're white, hot, mad, and you're upset, are you ready to say you're sorry? I know I'm not, I need some time to process. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll get there. But, you know, we sometimes ask our little tiny two-year-olds to do things that we can't do ourselves. So helping them find that calm, be able to talk about it and get some action steps together with the child, I think is a great approach. So I can't, um, I'm really int intrigued, I guess, by this, the concept and responsibility of the caregiver like it seems like when you're talking about it it's like oh my goodness there's so much like on this person right um so there's probably so many roles of the primary caregiver but like what are a few main ones that play a role in regard to development um and is there like are there I mean, well, I'll start there because I feel like there's a lot you can go into with that but <laughs> yes it's a big topic you know, the nice thing about having a baby and caring for a baby um, is a lot, there's a lot of kickback to it. We're designed to do that. I mean, our, our bodies and our brains and our, and our babies' bodies and brains are designed to function together. So it's a very, um, for a lot of people, most people, it's very natural. Um, you know, the things that you experience that are pleasurable and calming and that's the things that you want to pass along so like if you've ever had a massage and you know what that feels like how that's really uh, helps you relax and so we do a baby massage you know we like help 
um, bring that baby into that calm state and teach them that it's that this is what calm feels like. And we have this delightful period together, like we're enjoying this moment. And um, babies are when they're born, they're born looking for a face. And then they gaze at you and you gaze at them. And those quiet alert times are, are those teaching times where you're going to teach each other how to be together. Um, and, and you start learning over time. It, it does seem overwhelming when you start talking about like a lifespan. But when you just realize like day by day, you just grow together. Sometimes it doesn't go like that. You know, sometimes there's hormones or depression or other things that come in and interrupt that process. That's also where, you know, I can come in and, you know, or someone like me can come in and help um, find the resources that are needed or um, to figure out how to solve that problem, that issue. So in regard to that, that just uh, brought something up. Do, do you work with, um, obviously, very vague about this, but um, like women who have postpartum depression and maybe they like have that weird relationship or I, I don't even fully understand that, but they have a relationship where they're maybe like, they're not super affectionate about their baby, but they're just because they're suffering from depression. Um, what impact does that have on an infant? Well, on both, I, I would say that would affect the whole family, um, but mother and child can be impacted by withdrawing. I mean, if your baby's needing you and you're withdrawing because it's just too much, too hard, you know, that, that really can teach that baby that maybe their needs are not going to get met if they're trying to express them. Um, but, and it's really hard. I mean, those, um, those hormones and emotions that come, um, are out of your control. So those are, definitely like we need to bring in doctors and infant, you know, not just infant mental health, but also mental health professionals to help get to a better place for everybody. Um, my role, I think is to recognize it if I can, sometimes it's really hidden and people are really vulnerable to share that information or the, what they're feeling. And cause that's, you know, kind of shameful in a lot of ways, which is unfortunate because it's not, um, it needs to be addressed and it's not even something that you can control as a parent, as mom. I would say recognition and, and connecting them with resources would be my role specifically. So I really want to touch on a few different aspects of development. Um, mm -hmm. And so I know you said social and emotional are important. Um, but I would also like assume that like the, like you were saying, like physical development, which could play into social, right. You're building that connection, yes. but, um, like what, uh, and, and this is so odd to keep in the back of your mind, I'll ask you about it is like with COVID with the past year, the way it's been, and you have these babies who were born, um, and maybe they can't go to preschool or they can't be around, uh, they like, you know, you don't have family coming in because of COVID restrictions and stuff like that. So um, what do you think uh, based on your personal experience that you're going to see with these developing infants and how this time has affected their mental health as well as like their emotional and social development? Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question, Natalie. Well, first of all, we don't know all the impact 
because time hasn't passed enough to know. But there are babies that have never have been born and not known any time other than being in quarantine. And um, and I get this question a lot from families like, this little two-year-old has never even been at the park playing with other kids their age. Like, um, how? what do we do? How do we, you know, help them learn those skills? And I think, you know, now that things are opening up, we're gonna see more um, ability to connect children and, and teach them those skills. But it's definitely gonna take a toll um, on some of those, especially the ages where they're connecting with peers and we're looking for that parallel play, being comfortable interacting with each other. Um, babies, I'm, you know, really babies are most focused on their caregivers. Um, so I think they'll be okay. And when they're, um, I mean, depending on, I guess, how the adults are doing. So if they're having a hard time, I think that's going to be passed down to children that they're caring for. But um, if, if it's an adult that can manage those emotions and, and is able to care for their children, um, and maybe even they have like a pod of people that they're connecting with. I mean, as we're opening up, I think we're, we're seeing more of that. Um, but yeah, I just had a mom the other day that, that someone, they were at the park for one of the first times in their two-year-old's life. And, um, and he just lashes out and hits people that get too close because that's his bubble. And, and so we were talking about like, how do we help him get comfortable with that? Like, it's okay for your friend to take turns with that toy or to use it right over here if you're here, you know? So, <laughs> but over time, I think we'll find more, um, more of how that's had an impact. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, you think about like your own childhood and how if I feel like I was just constantly around people my age or like, you know, going over for like play dates or at the park. Yeah. Or whatever. So it's, yeah, it's interesting to think about that perspective. I guess you so when you think about um, the first three years of life and the development that happens there, um, you know, like with motor, um, you know, neuromuscular development, um, being able to just like grow and develop, that's like really critical and really important. Um, and so what I think personal opinion, um, people don't connect often is that impact the first few years of life have with that person being able to function as an adult. Mm -hmm. So, um, what, what do you have any, just like insights or anything that you'd want to like say about the impact of the first few years of development on like adult life? Ah, so I kind of think of those three years as foundational years. That's how I term it in my head. Like these are foundational skills. Like this is your base. So, you know, we want to have children that have um, routines and um, stable expectations and their needs met, um, boundaries, those things that we just lay out for them. And so then they can build on that. Um, so, you know, that brain growth in the first three years is huge. It's just phenomenal. All those synapses that are connecting, making those pathways. And I think the more that we can get children out and exploring different kinds of 
opportunities and, um, you know, places and seeing things and going to the, the barns at the fair and seeing the animals and learning about their world around them. Um, I think the more prepared they are as, as they get into those older children years and their teen years and their adult years. But really the reason that I focus on social emotional is um, those are the skills that get you through everything. So, you know, if you think about how many really bright people are in the world if they can't hold a job because they can't get along with others, that's pretty detrimental. So that's, I think, one of the most key things. But of course, all development, we want kids to, to be on track and um, being able to keep up with their peers and not, not in remedial programs at school or um, anything we can do to support them early, I think is an advantage for the child. That's really, I like the point you made about the, you know, social and emotional development. Cause I, I, I don't even, I didn't even think about that, but it's like really true how, you know, you have to be able to socialize and have communication skills and mm-hmm. be able to interact with other people. So huh, yep, that's very, really interesting. True. very interesting. What, um, what really got you motivated about this kind of stuff? I was thinking about that. Um, actually, I, I, I've always loved kids, so that was kind of a natural field for me to gravitate to. Um, and I just enjoyed watching them, but I really like analyzing them. And, uh, and people in general, probably <laughs> human behavior is fascinating to me. But um, so I, I sort of stumbled into early mental health and, um, and it really came from my love of attachment and learning about how babies get connected to other people and to their caregivers. And um, they, John Bowlby was the physician, they call him kind of the grand, the father of attachment theory. And he worked in a hospital um, that used to separate children from their parents when it was time for any kind of hospital care for, they were really big into being antiseptic or everything very clean and, so that no germs could enter in the body and keep us safe. But when they took the parents out of that traumatic, medically trauma, um, often they found that kids would cry and cry and cry. But when they had visiting hours on the weekends, we'd see children just shut down and wouldn't cry, but they wouldn't connect either. So he was really starting to study, why is that? Why Why is it that these children who are longing for their parents when they finally come shut down and um, and turn away from and and are really struggling. And so so I started studying all that and and then it leads down that path to infant mental health. But I think I've had a lot of personal experiences too. I think a lot of people do growing up that, that you start to put together like how that's impacted you as a person and, and how can you make it better for the next generation? So that's interesting. I didn't even know about that that guy. So that's really interesting. I might have to check him out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there anything I didn't ask you that you are like very passionate about sharing or like anything you want to add or I think you know, states are 
starting to pick up these infant mental health programs for certification. Uh, and you can look and see if you, your state offers that. You can check into getting, um, there's so much to learn. It's just like this big growing field. Um, and I think when you have that more in-depth knowledge, I mean, there's just even like so much to even go into today. Like it's, I barely have scratched the surface, you know, but if you're interested that you can check it out and in Idaho, it's aim early. Idaho is what it's called um, and it's online. So that might be a way to get more information. I'm sure. So people would check it out because I think it's really important and a really big topic that honestly isn't like you don't hear about enough, but it is very critical. So. Right. Well, I think of it really as, you know, we were trying to keep people out of incarceration or, you know, out of um, trouble and mental health issues, anxiety, and all these things, really, we can kind of trace that back. If we can intervene early, I think we can prevent a lot of things that we want to not see in a child's life. Like you said, it's so hard because, like, you're just scratching the surface. You could talk about it for so long. I really appreciate the chance to talk about it with you, Natalie. It's so, um, obviously, it's, like, my passion, um, but it's, it's great. I think it does need to get out there more and more and talk about like, you know, how can we help people uh, have a, a more rich experience with their children and, um, and be able to delight in them and, and follow their path and their own passions. So it's a great topic. Yeah, I love that. It's awesome. <laughs> you can also tell it's your passion, which is really cool. So <laughs> yeah. yes. With that being said, um, there's a lot to unpack in this episode. So definitely, if you have to go back and do some research on things, definitely encourage you to do that. Um, and then, yeah, I just want to thank the listeners and thank Keitha for being here and sharing all of this information with us, because as we just said, it's really important. So um, stay tuned next week. And we have another guest from Miami, Florida. I'm really excited to highlight her work. So yeah, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you guys next week.